please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's text comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word. So recently, I decided to rewatch the series Seinfeld. Do we have some fans? Nice. I, uh, I had some familiarity with it. Um, I remember distinctively uh, at my dad's house, we had, I had like a little gray TV in there that had six channels and like the CW was one of them. And they were always playing reruns of Seinfeld. And so that was like my first interaction with uh, Seinfeld. And to be totally honest, at like 14, 98% of the jokes, right over my head, had no understanding what was going on. But uh, I recently rewatched the series. Now, if you're not familiar with Seinfeld, here's the premise of the show. The show is about nothing, right? That's the whole spiel. So if you're like, well, you know, I have, do I have to start in the first season? No, there's no plot. There's no character development. It's not going anywhere. Each episode is like a standalone episode, and it's about nothing, really, at the end of the day. Now, this series is known as one of the most successful sitcoms of all time. When news came out about its ending in 1998, over 76 million people tuned in to see how it ended. And this series is known as one of the worst endings to a sitcom ever. It is unanimously hated. Now, um, as a reminder, the show is about nothing and ended in 1998, so no need to do spoiler alerts. It's been out for a long time. But uh, the series ends with a cast of characters on trial for breaking what's called the Good Samaritan Law. They saw someone being carjacked, and instead of calling for help or providing assistance, they made fun at their expense. And so the, the whole last episode is about this trial where several witnesses are called to testify against the four main characters about the kind of people that they are. And the trial concludes with them being found guilty and sentenced to one year in prison. In the final scene that you can see here, uh, Jerry and George begin to have a conversation in the jail cell about the second button on his shirt. He talks to, Jerry says that the second button's all wrong. It's way too high. And if the second button's wrong, the whole shirt is ruined. And George stops for a moment and thinks, and then he says, haven't we had this conversation before? And it's because they had. This is the exact same dialogue as the first few sentences the characters share, both George and Jerry, in the first episode of the series. People hate this ending of the series because they don't understand it. Seinfeld is not really a comedy. It's a dark critique of human culture and, how, and, and the propensity of human beings. The finale is a way to kind of pull back the curtain on what's been going on this whole time which is at the very least two things. One, the characters you've been laughing with and coming to endear are not good people at all. In fact, all of the eyewitness testimony reminds you of all the horrible things they did and said that you just laughed at. And second, the characters never grew. Through all the years of watching the show, all nine seasons, the characters 
are exactly the same people as when you began, represented in the conversation with Jerry and George. We're right back where we started. Nothing's changed. What this trial was supposed to bring in some sort of sense of character illumination proved to be fruitless. They are the same exact people as they were when the show started. The show, about nothing, is actually about something. It's the tragedy about the reality that some people never grow. This critique is also true of Christians. As followers of Jesus, we have a reputation that we are at war with. The reality today is that most Christians are viewed as unkind and harsh. This is the common reputation that we share. That as a reputation, we are very much unchristlike Christians. Now, I say this as someone who loves and is committed to the church of Jesus deeply. Recently, famous tattoo artist Kat Von D made it her conversion to Christ. And in doing so, she entered into the public waters of baptism. Now, Kat Von D was like a famous tattoo artist, you know, late mid to early 2000s-ish. So if you don't know who she is, don't feel bad. But she, her life, her previously in her life, she had spent much of her life in like witchcraft and the occult. Comes to believe in the Lord Jesus, enters the waters of baptism. Now, in one of, in, in part of her conversion, there were a lot of tattoos that signified the occult still in her life. And so one of the things that she did, she's done, um, is actually cover all of those tattoos with just like a whole like a black tattoo that covers the whole thing. So it just kind of covers the whole thing. There's like her whole skin is turning just to be tattooed all the way around. Now, uh, when asked about this, this is what she said. She said, I had many tattoos that represented a part of my life that no longer aligns with who I am today. Some people are fine with keeping these types of landmarks on them. I personally grew tired of waking up to them and seeing them as constant reminders every time I looked in the mirror. So you'd think that this moment, that this decision to cover her body, to cover these tattoos that were formerly a part of the occult, that this would be met by followers of Jesus with gladness, right? We should rejoice at our sister's conversion. Wrong. Followers of Jesus met her with criticism, demeaning words, rebuked her for choosing black as the color of ink because it represents darkness, berated her. Don't believe me? Pull up her Instagram and check the comments. The people who have most vitriol are not secularists telling her she's believing in the wrong worldview. It's not anybody else but Christians maligning somebody who's committed to the way of Christ. Our sermon today is not about tattoos, but I think we could all agree that that posture is fundamentally un-Christ-like. Her experience is not uncommon. Many people's experience is the exact same with those who claim to follow Jesus. Dallas Willard says this, Christians are routinely taught by example and word that it is more important to be right than it is to be Christ-like. In fact, being right licenses you to be mean and indeed requires you to be mean, righteously mean, of course. This teaching implodes upon itself because it creates groups of people who may be ready to die for their faith, but clearly are not ready to live for it. They rarely get along with each other, much less those outside, and often their most intimate relations are tangles of reciprocal harm, coldness, and resentment. They have found ways of being Christian 
without being Christ-like. How is it that people who claim to follow Jesus act nothing like him? It's one thing to assume that the world will be harsh against you. It's another thing that the people who are supposed to extend kindness and grace towards you don't. Out of personal experience, my deepest wounds have not come from people who don't know Jesus, but from people who claim to love him and know him, who have wounded me so deeply. Now, how is it that we get to this place? A big part of this is our relationship with the Bible. You see, there's a way for a person to know a lot about the Bible, but never actually change. They can understand theology and orthodoxy, tell you about Greek words that they've learned, but it never actually finds its way into their life. They experience the tragedy of never growing. They become like Seinfeld. Today, we're continuing in our series, The Sunday Gathering, Liturgy, Formation, and the People of God. And in this series, we are slowing down to take a look at why we do what we do when we gather. And on deck for today is why we read and teach the Bible. Now, to start our time today, I kind of want to set the table with our relationship with the Bible, if that's okay. Is that cool? Okay, six of you are on board. The rest of you are skeptical. Hopefully, I win you over as we go along. The first thing I want to say is this. The Bible is difficult. Is that okay to say? Am I going to get thrown out of here for saying that? It's difficult. It would be strange if it wasn't. How many of you in your spare time read ancient Jewish meditation literature from 2,000 years ago? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah. <laughs> Aside from the Bible. Nobody, right? Well, if you do, let's have a conversation because I'm genuinely curious about the things you're reading. But for many of us, if we're really honest, our relationship with the Bible is complicated. Like on one hand, we know it's good, we know we ought to read it, we know there's valuable things in it, but our experience with the Bible is so different. We often leave confused, asking way more questions than we feel like we've had answered, and are, aren't exactly sure of what to do with what we've just read. Now, it has been said that the Bible is the most popular book that is never read. Now, I want to name for us today that the Bible is difficult, and I don't think enough people who do what I do say that. I think everybody just thinks that you've been steeped in ancient Jewish literature and that you're just supposed to know how this thing is supposed to work. Now, granted, you don't need a PhD to be able to read it, but you do need a certain level of skill and understanding to interpret the scriptures wisely. And there are two realities that exist right now that I think make the reading the Bible a lot more difficult. First is the rising rate of biblical illiteracy, and second is the rising rate of bad teaching. Let's take on biblical illiteracy first. First, most people don't read the Bible, and I can understand why. Chances are you have a lot of questions about the Bible, and there's a lot of rhetoric around the Bible that helps you not want to read it even more. And if you do read it, chances are you're not reading it the way it was designed to be read. Right? Some people treat the Bible like a moral handbook, that this is basic instructions before leaving earth. Who heard that? Yeah. Wrong. Right? Because if you're like, how am I supposed to be a good husband? You turn to Leviticus and read about not cooking a goat in its mother's milk. What do you do with that, right? That's not really going to help you all that much. And so we treat it as a moral handbook. And so when we come to the scriptures, we're pretty confused. Some of us treat it as an emotional grab bag. My mind is like, this is a spiritual fortune cookie. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you have for me today? And you open up a passage, and it's a passage about war. And you're like, <laughs> I don't know what this is supposed to mean for me, Jesus, right? Uh, we, we treat it as a devotional grab bag, a fortune cookie from God who gives us inspiration and intellect into things that are going on in our world. Some treat it like a theological encyclopedia, that if they come to this, they can develop a full and, and cleared out doctrine of who God is and who we are and all these other things, but it's treated like that. So if I want to figure out what Jesus thinks about divorce, I just turn to page 237, and here's all the Bible's teaching and outline on divorce, except that's not what the Bible is. Now, all of these uh, ways of reading the Bible have things that are true about them, right? Does the Bible contain moral teaching? Yes. Does the Bible contain passages that inspire and encourage? Yes. Does the Bible take on some controversial issues and help you try to formulate thoughts on them? Yes. But not in the ways that we think. If we're going to engage with the Bible, we must engage with the Bible on its own terms, not on ours. Second is the rising rate of bad teaching. There are a lot of people who have been wounded by just straight up bad teaching of the Bible. For a lot of people, the Bible has been weaponized as ammunition of condemnation or shame. It has been weaponized against them in difficult moments to heap condemnation upon them. There are a lot of people who like to use, this, the, use the Bible. It's kind of like a fortune-telling book, and anything that happens in modern culture, they come to here and point out some obscure passage. I'll never forget when the COVID pandemic first happened, there were all these influencers showing up on my, on my feed saying about how the COVID pandemic was a sign of God's judgment towards us and that Jesus would be coming any day soon. We're a couple of years removed away from the pandemic and he's yet to return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But I think that they're wrong. And the same passage that they're quoting to say, see, he's returning in a couple of weeks. That same book says that no one knows the day or the hour. Do with that what you will, not even Jesus himself. So, People don't know how to use the scriptures and then use them poorly and create bad paradigms and ways of thinking about and working through the scriptures. And so I know a lot of you here in this room have found healing from thinking about the Bible the way the biblical authors have intended, not how it's been used in the past. And so I think these two things, and, and also, if I could go on a small, small tirade, like YouTube preachers are a problem. If I, can I just say that? Thank you. Josiah is with me. YouTube preachers are a problem. Okay, is it good that you listen to sermons? Yeah, I want you to find people that you enjoy. Do I say you just have to listen to me? No. But they do not have the accountability of a community. They can just post a clip from their mother's basement critiquing what's happening in the world with no actual critiques in real life. Sermon, sermon preaching has become about content. And when there's no conformity to a community or accountability, you're free to say and do whatever. And that's how we get some of the things today. And also, there are YouTube preachers who are preaching for clicks, for likes. They say controversial things just to get you angry so you watch their videos. Or just to get others angry so they watch their videos. That's a problem. Do with that what you want. I just had to say that. All right. So, if those things are happening, it kind of begs the question then, what is the Bible? The definition that we love, kind of an amalgamation from the Bible Project and others, is this, that, this, that the Bible is a library of ancient writings that are both human and divine that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Again, it's a library of ancient writings that are both hu divine and human that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. 
First, the Bible is a library. Uh, the word Bible, biblios in Greek, means book. So it's kind of confusing that this is not a book, but actually a library. So one helpful paradigm shift for you in your mind is not to just think about this as one book together, but actually a library of books that are all doing the same thing. Uh, imagine going to a library and standing before the shelf and seeing all these different books, and each book is broken into categories and genres and literary styles. The same is true of the Bible. It contains all of these different things. And so uh, it, it being a library tells us that it has all these different forms of literatures and genres that demand that we read them accordingly. Imagine going to the library in the poetry section trying to figure out how to, how to cook a, like a rump roast or something. It's like you'd have some problems if you went to it with that mentality. The same is true of the scriptures. Each book has a genre that it fits within. Some have blends of genres, but nonetheless an overarching genre that it has to be read, uh, the way it's supposed to be read. Last year, we did a whole series about uh, the story of the Bible. The introduction to that series would be really helpful if you want some more stuff here. The next is that it's ancient writings. The Bible is really old. Can we say that? It's really old, right? And that's not like kind of rude. Like I would say we could all agree 2,000 years plus fits in the old category. I think we could all agree. By definition, it is ancient. And so... When we come to it, we can't come to the Bible with modern Western assumptions. The biblical authors aren't looking to answer the questions that we have. We have to take the Bible on its own terms. Many of us come to the scriptures, try to impose our way of thinking on the biblical story and make the, question, the authors answer questions they weren't even asking. And so there's this chasm between us and the biblical text, a chasm, hear me in this, that absolutely can be crossed, but if you don't acknowledge the chasm, you're going to have all kinds of issues. We are tourists in the scriptures, and so we want to honor and live well within the culture of the Bible itself. Next, the Bible is both human and divine. There are two equal and opposite errors when we think about the Bible. First is to think about it as merely a human endeavor. The, the language you hear from progressive, and I don't mean that in a necessarily political sense, but uh, progressive in an academic sense, think that a bunch of people just came into the room and got together and were conspiring, like, we're going to write this document that everyone's going to believe for 2,000 years and show everybody, you know, they think that's what happened. Not the case at all. Um, so that's the merely human endeavor. Some of it, think of it like what uh, Tim Mackey calls the golden tablets from heaven, that the Bible just suddenly appeared without any human intervention, and now it's the sacred book that we're supposed to, and that's not what the Bible says, even about itself. As you go throughout the scriptures, you find pauses in the story where God is inviting people to write down what's been happening. You see the Bible recording its own writing as it's happening along. Now, there's a lot to be said there, but here's what you need to know. It is both human and divine, not one or the other. It's both and the Bible talks about itself this way. The Bible is a record of human and divine partnership. So it's not surprising that the Bible itself would be a human and divine partnership. And I think there's an image that helps illustrate what I mean. This is a drawing by M.C. Escher. And you see two hands drawing one another. I think this is a beautiful image to, to show what the, what the scriptures coming together were like. Next, the Bible tells a unified story. This is so important. The Bible is fundamentally a story. Yes, it has a lot of different genres, and you move through different movements, but it is a whole story progressing along, and it ultimately leads us to Jesus. When we understand that the Bible is a story, it helps so much. And last, it culminates in the person of Jesus. Right? Jesus said of himself that he is the culmination and fulfillment of the story. 
And so, if this is what the Bible is, then why do we teach it at our Sunday gathering? For the remainder of our time, I want to examine a uh, verse from one of Paul's letters to Timothy here in 2 Timothy or 2 Timothy, whatever you prefer. I'm not going to judge you for either one. So Paul is writing to a young church planner named Timothy and is helping him navigate all the complexity of the city and the community that he finds himself leading. And in this letter, Paul's doing a lot of things, but one of the things he's doing is he's trying to remind and encourage Timothy in his own story and to deal with the issues that the community of Jesus is facing. Now, one of those issues that's happening in Timothy's time is that there are false teachers teaching a message contrary to the way of Jesus. We don't know the exact details, but it's something along the lines that the resurrection has already happened. Problematic, as you would see that to be. Not Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of all humanity. And so Paul, among other things, is trying to help Timothy confront these false teachers and instead raise up teachers who are accurately teaching the way of Jesus. And in doing this, Paul reminds Timothy of the power and authority of the scriptures. He begins with this line, all scripture is God-breathed. Paul begins the, this portion to Timothy saying, reminding Timothy of the, what's known as the inspiration of scripture. The phrase God-breathed in Greek is theopneustos. Can you say that? Theopneustos. Theo, meaning God. Pneuma, meaning spirit or breath. So literally, God breathed. Now, this word is kind of difficult to nail down because this is the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. A lot of biblical scholars believe that Paul invented this word just for this moment um, to explain exactly what the scriptures are like. So some translations come to different conclusions. The NIV has all scriptures God breathed. The ESV has all scriptures breathed out by God. NLT has all scripture is inspired by God. And the NASB has all scripture is inspired by God. A lot of different views on this. Um, don't want to get into the debate about each translation, but here's what I want to say. They're both getting at what it's talking about. They both are just coming at it from a different way. And so the phrase carries with it all sorts of implications. But I think the most helpful and important place for us to start when thinking about scripture as God breathed is not to get into the debate about is it scripture or the inspiration happens when you read the scripture, but rather for us to begin with, how did Jesus think about the Bible? What was his relationship with the Bible? Because Paul is echoing that in his letter to Timothy. Short answer, Jesus was obsessed with the Bible. He was. He lived and breathed it. At any given moment, Jesus is quoting from it, reciting on it, thinking about it, reading about it, uh, publicly speaking it in the temple. Jesus' life is immersed and surrounded by the scriptures. He would quote from it teach from it, argue about how to best interpret it, and therefore live into it, he would pray the Bible, and his whole way of living and seeing the world was shaped by the Bible. And because we are followers of Jesus, it is our aim and goal to have the same kind of relationship with the Bible that Jesus had. Jesus saw himself as the reality to which the Bible points to. I want you to notice a line in John 5. Jesus here is speaking to Pharisees about the relationship with the Bible, their relationship with the Bible and the relationship with him. And he says this, John 5, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. One of the great dangers is that we can misunderstand what the Bible is. 
The Bible is a story leading us somewhere. More specifically, the Bible is a story leading us to someone who is Jesus. How we become people who never change is we see the Bible as an end, not the means to the end. The, the Bible is merely a means that leads us to Jesus and relationship with him um, and relationship with him. The Pharisees missed God's word in the flesh because of their relationship with the Bible. They missed out on Jesus, God's word incarnate, because of their own relationship and interpretation with the Bible. It is not the end. It is a means to an end. Jesus clearly says here that the scriptures themselves do not have what? Eternal life, which is what we're all longing after. Jesus has that. And the scriptures testify to Jesus. And so in this, Jesus affirms and submits to the authority of the Bible. Matthew 28, Jesus says this, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. For us to talk about our relationship with the Bible, we have to start with Jesus. All authority is given to Jesus. Jesus is our authority. But Jesus chooses to mediate his authority through the scriptures. Let me explain this a bit. All authority is mediated through writing. Driving here, you passed a speed limit sign at some point. If you didn't see it, maybe you were going a little fast. Now, the speed limit sign is the government's mediated authority. They're saying, here's how fast you can go. What happens if you go faster and get caught? Don't act like none of you have never been pulled over before. What happens if you read it and don't adhere to it? You get a ticket. You get pulled over. Something happens, right, if you get caught. Now, the sign is not the authority itself, right? It, it, it's backed by an authority. It's mediated through an authority, which is the government. Another example. It's Friday afternoon. It's 3 o'clock. You're about to peel out real quick. And at, you know, 347, you get an email from your boss saying, if this could be completed by end of day. You have a decision. Do I obey authority and do this task, even though chances are I'll be going home a little late, or pretend like I didn't see it and move forward? Either way, the boss's authority is being mediated through an email, and you're coming into confrontation with that. So the email, the sign, the scriptures are not the authority in and of themselves. They are backed by a greater authority, which is the authority of Jesus. And so the Bible gets its authority from God not the other way around. And we as followers of Jesus trust in the Bible because we trust in Jesus, not the other way around. We trust in Jesus, therefore we trust the Bible, not the other way around. And that sequencing is important. Andrew Wilson says this, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him. So if he, if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. We submit to the scriptures because we submit to Jesus, and Jesus himself submitted to the scriptures. 
Now, I know that as I said the word submission and authority already, the inner Americans like, freedom, like, right? No authority over me. Don't tread on me. I hear you. Okay, trust me. I do. But to be a follower of Jesus fundamentally means you place yourself under his teaching and his ways. And one of the central ways this happens is through the scriptures. We avoid the danger of never growing when we begin to see the Bible as authoritative for our lives. And Jesus himself submitted to the scriptures. He lived his life under the reality of the scriptures. But according to Jesus, he's not just the reality that the Bible points to, points to nor is the Bible just merely an authoritative voice. He sees himself as the culmination of the story the Bible is telling. And one of Jesus' most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, The law of the prophets is a shorthand way of referring to the scriptures of Jesus' day, as you know as the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus said he did not come to do away with the scriptures, but rather fulfill it. Jesus sees his own life as the telos, as the purpose, as the whole thing that the story is culminating in. Don't believe me? Another example. When Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, Jesus meets the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. He's having a conversation with them. And in doing so, um, he explains to them, they don't realize who he is, but he explains to them how the scriptures are culminating in himself. Luke 24, verse 27 says this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, being Jesus, explained to them, these disciples, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So these disciples who are leaving Jerusalem on their way to Emmaus missed Jesus because they did not understand him as the fulfillment of the story. So what does Jesus do? Walk them through the scriptures and point how all the scriptures point to him. So as we think about our relationship with the Bible, We see that not only does Jesus see the scriptures as helpful and useful, but that through the scriptures we begin to see things as they actually are. The Bible enables us to see things as they are. It is a revelation. So what we get to do is is the Bible gives us a lens in which to view the world. Now, I use the word revelation here in the truest sense of the word, meaning an unveiling, a pulling behind of the curtains to see what's beyond. And through the Bible... We begin to see our lives through a different lens. As human beings, we are storied creatures, meaning the way we make sense of the world is through stories. Leslie Newbegin says this, The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life is part? Everyone lives according to a story. Okay, even the most hardened, secularist, atheist holds to a story. Their story is, everything's a happy accident, you're just lucky to be here, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's a story. They make decisions based off of that story. Everybody holds to a story. The question is how that story shapes us. And so, um, as we engage with the Bible... We begin to see things not as they seem to us, but as they actually are. Mike Erie says this, The Bible reveals the world as it really is. 
It is not primarily a theological textbook, a book of laws and regulations. It is a story that presents a different way of seeing the world and our lives in it. And the way that it does this is through storytelling. So what we like to do is we like to read a passage of scripture and think, what's the moral of the story, right? Good guy, bad guy, did they do the right thing, did they do the wrong thing? Now, are there moments in the scriptures where that happens? Yup. But is that the primary way the Bible wants to teach us? No. It is inviting us to think about our life through the lens of this story. It is not a basic instructions before leaving earth manual, but it's ancient Jewish meditation literature. You're supposed to think about the story. Ah, that's interesting that Abraham did that. You know, it's easy to judge Abraham. That guy's the worst, dude. He lied about his wife like that. Could you believe that? What about the times you lie to save your own butt? Right? Suddenly, the Bible starts to confront you in the way that you think about things. In what ways have I been dishonest to protect my self-image or to protect myself? In what ways am I currently doing that? What did that bring about in Abraham's life? What will it bring about in mine? Suddenly, it comes alive. And we begin to see things as they are, uh, not as we just perceive them to be. And so as you journey through the scriptures, here's what you begin to see. You see who God is. Throughout the stories of the scriptures, you're getting a, a, a picture of his heart, most realized in the person and work of Jesus. We see who we are. The, the Bible opens with us being made in the image of God, and the Bible concludes with our bodies being resurrected back to that image in its totality. We see who we are, and also we see what our place is in the world. We see governments and things like that, and we see how we're supposed to interact with the things around us. But hear me in this. The only way that happens is that not if we just read the Bible, but if we allow the Bible to read us. And so one of our greatest challenges is that we see ourselves as an authority over the Bible, not under it. What I mean by that is we come to the Bible with fully formed ideas about how the world works. When I come to the Bible, I read it through my own lens. In other words, I want the Bible to be the way I want it to be, not the way the Bible is. So you come already looking for confirmation bias. I feel this way politically, the Bible affirms that. And notice both sides use the scriptures to do that. So who's right? Both are wrong because both are not taking the Bible on their own terms. They're trying to catalyze it for their own disposition already. Not just taking the Bible as it comes and letting it lead us to decisions from there. One of the most famous stories of this is one of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. Um, there was a famous, there's a famous exhibit, I forget in which museum, it's the Thomas Jefferson Bible, where literally he cut out pages of the scriptures he didn't like. He went through there, he's like, mm, don't like that story, Pfft, I don't believe in miracles, Pfft, I don't like that Jesus said that, Pfft. and he curated a Bible made in his own image. Now it sounds like, oh, Thomas Jefferson, how could you be so disrespectful with the Bible? We do the same exact thing when we pick and choose things we want to obey rather than others. We do the exact same thing. Your pencil, your, your, your scissors may stay in the drawer, but you're still ripping it out all the same. You know what I'm saying? So we have to take the Bible as it is. Scott McKnight, this is such a good line. God did not give us the Bible so that we could master him or it. God gave us the Bible so we could live it and so we could be mastered by it. The moment we think we've mastered it, we fail to be readers of the Bible. And many of us are reading the scriptures in order to master them, to 
to have them, to control them, to, to put them underneath our authority. But to understand the scriptures as God breathed fundamentally means that I realize that the Bible is not a place of control. It's a place of encounter. Rowan Williams says this, Christians read the Bible not as a document from history, but as a world into which they enter so that God may meet them there. If I am humble enough and I'm open enough, I can encounter the living God in the scriptures. And as I come to meet him there, I'm changed. But here's the issue. Many of us come to read the scriptures primarily through the lens of information, not through the practice of formation. So notice what Paul continues saying. The scriptures are God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we come to encounter the living God, the scriptures form us. Notice what Paul says that the scriptures are useful for or helpful for. He says teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Now first, teaching. Now again, how does the Bible teach us? It teaches us through stories. It exposes us and opens our eyes to things that maybe we were previously unaware of or not even looking for as we submit ourselves to its story, as we engage with the story. And so um, when the word, the, the word teaching is used, not the teachings, but teaching is used like that, it's often referred to as, uh, the go- it, also, it often means the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the totality of the story is what that often means. And so what Paul is saying is that the story of the scriptures actually shape us when we expose ourselves to this teaching, to the teachings of Jesus, to the story arc as a whole. And so the scriptures are useful for teaching us the story, and as we learn the story, we change. Second is rebuking, which is your favorite word, I can already tell. Rebuking is a very church word, a very Christian word. Chances are you don't use this at the office, right? Somebody turns to the wrong paperwork, I rebuke that, right? It's like you don't say that at all. Um, And it has some kind of harsh connotations to it in our modern culture. The word uh, rebuke is a confrontational word though. It means to expose. So I want you to imagine that like you're in a doctor's office and the doctor has to have a hard conversation with you about like your blood pressure or about something like that. And if you just refuse to hear them, it's like, hey buddy, we got the lab results back and they don't look good. No, they look great. No, let me, you know, I'm trying to explain to you, no dude, like really it's a problem. I don't think it is. I think you're lying, right? It's like, Rebuking is exposing, it's revealing. It's the doctor putting up the x-ray and saying, the leg is broken, man, broken. Now we can do something about it or we can pretend to be in uh, like this illusionary fantasy. And so the Bible confronts us. It exposes things about us. It reveals things they actually are. And if you're humble enough and if you're open enough, here's what'll happen. You'll realize all the areas you're broken. Be like, oh. Jesus says, pray for our enemies. I like to gossip about them way more, right? Jesus says to be generous, but actually I like to spend money for myself instead, right? The Bible is constantly confronting us, and not in a way to condemn us, but in effort to heal us. There is no healing without confrontation. 
We can't begin to talk about remedies unless we talk about the problem. Now, what we want to do is transport that problem out there in the world. It's the government. It's the lady at my office. It's whatever. But what the Bible is fundamentally doing is it's a mirror, and it's showing you the problem's not necessarily out there, though it is. The problem is actually in here. It's with me. So the Bible confronts us. But here's what's amazing. The next word Paul uses, correcting. The word for correcting here has the idea of setting a bone back in place, realigning so that healing can begin. So the Bible confronts you in saying, things are much worse than you thought, but there's good news. There's grace. Grace covers you and heals you and restores you and puts you back on a better path. And so in the same way the Bible shows us the mirror, it also begins to bind up our wounds and begins to realign us again with the story we're meant to live in. And lastly is the word, is, the last word there is training. Now this word uh, was used in Paul's day to talk about what would happen to a Roman citizen, this kind of training. When you were young, you would go to school and you'd actually go to a gymnasium and be taught things, be taught trades and different things like that when you were younger so that you could become a part of the polis, the city. The, the, the culture of Rome. And so this word that they use for training is that word. Paul says, I'll take that, thank you very much, and use it for my own purposes to talk about the way of Jesus. We tend to think that the way that we change through the scriptures is just through the way of information. Like once I know the information, then I'm good. I got it right here, tucked in here, who Jesus really is, so I'm good. But it's actually meant to be trained out in our lives through a painstaking process. We tend to think, I'm just going to read through the fruits of the scriptures. The fruit of the scriptures love. Oh, I'm just going to be loved today. Jesus zapped me. Okay, I'm loving, right? And then you go to work, and that's not the case at all. No, the way the scriptures get worked out in you is like training. It's like working out. It takes effort and intentionality. And and submission to the spirit at work in you, but it still takes effort nonetheless. We want it to work the other way, that we just read it and boom, I'm changed. But actually, it changes us slowly over time. And the word training, I think, beautifully captures what it's like to actually apprentice under Jesus. It's wrestling. It's fighting. It's trying. You know, it's all of those things. All in grace all by the power of the Spirit, but all require effort nonetheless. And all of these happens, Paul says, so that we may be thoroughly equipped. That is a very, like, Christian language, right? Are you thoroughly equipped, brother? Right? That just sounds very Christian. The idea behind it is, is that a thing is operating in the way it was designed to operate. So uh, my kids don't understand what my tools do when they find them. It does whatever, like a, a flathead screwdriver is a sword. And I'm like, I don't think so, right? Like, no way. They don't understand the tool's purpose or design, right? So they use it to dig holes in the backyard. <laughs> they use it to do whatever. And I have to save the tools from their, their grasps and save them from themselves oftentimes. They don't understand the purpose for which it was made. But when the, when the tool functions in the purpose it was made, that's the word it's talking about, thoroughly equipped. What, this, what Paul is saying about the scriptures is as we allow them to have their work in us, to read us, to have mastery over us, we begin to become more fully human. 
We become who we were made to be. We begin to operate in the way that we were designed to operate in. That's what Paul is getting at here. Now, the way that this happens is the Bible actually nourishes us. I want you to think about Jesus' line in Matthew 4 as he's being tempted by the serpent to operate in a way he is not intended to be. Jesus responds and says this, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Is Jesus saying not to eat breakfast, just to pray instead? No. Jesus is saying, what brings nourishment, what brings life, what brings healing to your bones, what makes you live in the way you were intended to design is feasting on God's word. Eugene Peterson says this, Christians feed on scripture. Holy scripture nourishes the holy community as food nourishes the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use the scriptures. Notice this line, we assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. The Word thoroughly equips us that we may be equipped for every good work. We become fully human, so we may operate as we were designed to operate, and those very acts flowing from our person. This is what the scriptures have the power to do. Now, what does this mean about the Bible in our gatherings? Well, elsewhere, Paul tells Timothy in a previous letter this, 1 Timothy 4.13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. So every Sunday... We have this moment of the public reading of Scripture. For some of you who grew up in the Catholic Church, it may feel very Catholic to you. It's a Jesus thing. When the Scriptures were written, not everybody had their own copy of the Bible. That did not happen until much, much later when the printing press was invented. There were scrolls that were handed by from community to community. And the primary way a community would interact with the Bible was not a cup of coffee, Bible, coffee shop, picture, boom, right? It was in a setting like this, someone who was able to read would come and read the scriptures and actually like perform them for the community. That was the primary way they engaged with the scriptures was in that type of environment. Now, you might be thinking, but we're modern, right? I have it on my phone. I could choose the font I want, the color behind it, right? We've moved on from that. Do not dismiss the power of what's happening and this formative practice of reading scripture publicly. Something happens when the Bible is read aloud. It kind of washes over your person in a new way. You pay attention. You listen differently. You lean in in a different way when the scriptures are read aloud. And it's communal in that aspect. J.Y. Kim says this, the reading and corporate hearing of scripture has always been vital parts of the, Christ of the life of the Christian faith. The books of the Bible have always been at the center of the Jesus movement. Not only that, but up until the last few hundred years, reading the Bible had primarily been a communal and extended act. It was communal in the sense that the corporate reading, of, reading and hearing the scriptures was seen as the main way to engage the text. It was extended in the sense that these books were understood as long-format texts, meant to be read and heard either 
in their entirety or at the very least prolonged segments. When you'd come to a gathering in the other church, they would read the whole book of Romans in one seating or standing, right? They would go through whole swaths of scriptures. And so when we come together, we honor the history of the public reading of scripture by doing that, by reading the scriptures together before we come to the teaching of God's word. We also stand. Um, it's not just like a, you know, so I stand because God knows I'm really serious or something of that nature. But it's a way to tell our bodies that this isn't just any word. This is the word of God that we're responding to. And that we're already training our bodies that when we hear, we respond. When we hear God's voice, when we hear his word, it requires something from us. Not just to intellectualize and pontificate and, oh, I like that, that's good. But to respond with our bodies saying something else is happening here. The reading of God's word. So we do that together as a community, and we do it in a way that's embodied. Now, next, Paul says that we're to do to the teaching and preaching, which is what's happening right now, right? Now, Jesus was a rabbi, which is a really cool Jewish way of saying teacher. Jesus did what I did, way better for sure, but did what I did nonetheless, he taught people. That was his primary way of engaging and interacting with people was through the lens of teaching. The church has always been a house of learning. And so when we come together, we come together to learn the scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, you'll read how older people in the faith are supposed to bring younger people in the faith along through teaching. There's example after example after example that we do not have time to go in today, but it's all done through teaching. The sharing, the expositing, the revealing of God's word, but also preaching. Which doesn't mean I got my sweat rag up here, right, and I want to start shouting and going crazy. Preaching simply means to proclaim, to declare the message of Jesus aloud, to say it. And so there's the teaching, the expositing of God's word, and then there's the proclaiming, the, 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 the sharing of God's word with others. That's what's happening here. Now, as I said last week, I realize that chances are if I stopped you on Wednesday this week and I was like, hey, what was one of the points I said on Sunday? Chances are you'd be like, uh, right? You'd be on the spot. And especially if I did that to you, that'd be kind of messed up, right? But if somebody just said, tell us one of the points, uh, you know, you'd be kind of, uh, what is it, breakfast was A, I don't know, I don't know. You wouldn't remember. That's fine. I'm not hurt about that. So don't feel like you have to, like, see me Wednesday and be like, just so you know, the Bible is formation, you know, and let me know that or something. That's not what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying. Teaching changes you slowly over time in ways that are almost imperceptible. Worship are often powerful moments of encounter. Teaching and preaching is, like, slowly changing over time. Slowly exposing yourself to truth slowly exposing yourself to the reality of God, slowly presenting things in front of you, and as time goes on, you change. And then one day, two years from now, four years from now, five years from now, you begin to talk in the language of the scriptures. You begin to be formed by the teaching that you have heard. And it's, you don't even realize that it's happening. So boom, mind tricks. That's been happening to you this whole time. You didn't even know it. But this is why we do it. We're a house of learning. We use the scriptures to bring about us to become like Jesus. And so, in closing, I think about that image of Seinfeld, of having the same conversations about the same stuff over and over again. 
I realize that this is a problem in the church. That we have paradigms and things that we already have pre-made boxes for that things are supposed to fit within. And we live according to that. But Jesus and the scriptures are always inviting us into something more. They're not inviting us to merely treating the scriptures as information to know so you have the right answers for the test. It's that we would become shaped by them. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that we as the church are constantly being conformed to the image of the Son. If we are not becoming like Jesus, then what are we doing? The way that we become like Jesus is by hearing his teaching, responding, and obeying. Saying yes. So, would you join me in standing? We're going to respond to what we sense the Spirit leading us into right now. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it blood and flourish, so that the seed, so that ye seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but I will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word is a seed being planted into your heart to bring about fruit. And it always accomplishes its purpose. And so we want to respond to that now. As I was preparing this sermon, I just felt a few invitations that might be for us. I have a sense that some of you have a really complicated relationship with the Bible that I did not answer all your questions or reservations. You still have plenty of those. But maybe you're realizing there's something more. And you're wanting something more. You're wanting to have the relationship Jesus had with the Bible, with the Bible. And so if that's you, I want to ask you to respond by just coming to the front and just with your hands open saying, God, I want that. I want that relationship with the scriptures. I also have a sense that there are those who have been wounded by bad Bible teaching. And that's weighed heavy on you. And it's made reading the Bible hard on you. And it makes even being in a community like this hard for you. And here's what I know. That God wants to bring about some healing. So if that's you, I have a, I have a sense that the Spirit wants to reawaken wonder for the Scriptures in you and heal the areas that have been wounded by bad teaching. So if that's you, would you come forward and respond? And for others of you, hunger is being stirred. You're just excited about, like, actually getting back and reading the scriptures. And it will probably be hard, and you'll probably be confused, but we'll figure that out together. But there's a hunger being stirred in you right now. Something is stirring in your person. You're saying, yeah, I want that. I want, I want the word. I want it. 
we're going to invite you to respond as well too by just coming forward with your hands open saying, Jesus, I want to engage you in your word. So as we respond as a community, people will come forth for you and lay hands on you and pray for you. They want to ask you questions. They want to interview you. They'll just bless you. Do not be someone who hears the word and does nothing. Be someone who hears the word and responds.